Look at your neighbor and say, you're a kingdom ambassador. Amen, amen. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, my brother, singing and helping out. Man of God. And he's single, ladies. Last time I checked. Still single. All right. I don't know if he's ready to mingle yet, but he is single. Praise the Lord. Open up your Bibles with me to the book of John, chapter 1. How many are enjoying the book of John? Amen. We just got started in it. I pray that you do your homework throughout the week. Read the book of John. Also put the book of John on audio. It's a great book to listen to, very poetic, very story-like. There's actually a movie made about the gospel of John, word for word, about the gospel. So that shows you how poetic it is that uh, out of all the gospels that they could just go word for word and make a movie out of it was John. It's online for free. Check it out. John chapter 1, verse 1. Somebody say, I'm there if you're there. Thank you. Last week we got to verse 14. We talked about the eternality of the Word of God, the Logos always being with us. And then we concluded with the Logos becoming flesh. What I would like to do is start again in verse 1, just because we only tapped on a few key concepts there. I like to hit on a few more. I think there's a limitless amount of concepts here. Logic itself is grounded here, in other words. We could be here discussing everything that is logical from the Word. In, in other words, when I read verse 1, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, I can now hold a science class. Do you guys get that? Because everything about science, biology, what is that last part, ology? That's logos. That's the study of. Did you know that? You know, we get that from the Greek, but that's right there uh, in the Greek, logos. So I could say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and now I could have an anthropology class. This is why we should never divorce the Word of God from anything that we're doing, whether it's business and economics, whether it's family, whether it's science. And, and for people to look at us now and to think that's strange, all we have to do is point them back in history and say, who, who were the first scientists? Christians. Who made the scientific method? Christians. Who were the inventors? You know, who were the ones that discovered these things? Christians. And then the universities. Who's the one that even uh, developed the model called the universities? University. Christians. Somebody say, that's my people. Amen. Like I said before, when somebody starts off a story, but, you know, and they're talking to me, and they say, well, your people enslaved my people. I say, those weren't those were my people. My people were the one enslaved singing spiritual songs and hymns. Those were my people. My people aren't the Italian people. My people aren't the Polish people. My people are the people of God. I'm where, you go want to go back in history, you want to find my people, find the people of God. Amen. That's how all of us need to be. Kingdom culture. I'm a part of this culture right here. I didn't have a choice to how I would be born, male or female, what generation I would be born in. I didn't have a choice to whether or not I would have dark hair or light hair or freckles or light skin and all that. But I had a choice to be born again. Amen. And I got born again into the family of God. This is my family. Amen. And I appreciate those who have come before me handing me my DNA. But just because you hand me my DNA, that doesn't mean you're my people. This is my people right here. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus, you know, that Jesus was preaching, and his mother and his brothers came with his family, and they came and said, hey, Jesus, your family's out there. They want you. You need to stop what you're doing and go out there. And then what did Jesus say? Who's my brother? Who, who's my sister? Who are, is, are those people? My mother, he said, those who do the will of God. 
Amen. So when we go to John chapter 1, when I say that the topics are limitless, I mean that. That is not just a preacher trying to be uh, braggadocious on what I know. No, I'm saying like the foundation of all knowledge is found in the Word of God. We reason from His reasoning. Anything that we have uh, come to via reasoning has not truly been invented. It's only been discovered. So when someone like Sir Isaac Newton, who was a Christian, wrote more about the Bible than he did about physics, when he talks about physics and, and laws of motion, what he's doing is discovering the mind of God and the creative mind that he used when he created motion. Does everybody get that? And so when, whether it's a telescope or a microscope, in our world today, they have forgotten the logos. The logos is the word of God eternal. And I like to remind people of, of this because we're going to hear these terms, father and son. And sometimes people think the son was created because the son had a birth. But right here in the beginning, when we take our, our notes from Genesis, the word was already created, or, or rather the word was already there before creation. Let me not go into heresy, y'all. Uh, the word was there before creation. Okay, somebody edit out that other part. So some people think that the Word was created along with creation, that because uh, Jesus has the term son, that that must mean that he was created at some point. But let me ask you a question. How long has the Father been a father for all of eternity? Well, can you be a father without an offspring? So how long has the Son been the Son? For all of eternity, so for as long as the Father has been the Father is as long as the Son has been the Son. Somebody said, oh, that makes sense. So if we're going to call him God the Father, that means he's got to have been God the Father from the very beginning, and there was not a time when he wasn't God the Father. And so where did he get his fatherly nature from? He got it from, and this is where we could get a little deep, and I've been deciding on this, whether it's here or John 3.16, when we learn about the only begotten, monogenes in the Greek, I want to show you the eternal begetting of the Son. So for as long as the Father has been the Father, the Son has been the Son, and the Bible Bible says that the relationship of the Father to the Son has been an eternal begetting. That doesn't mean that the Son has uh, had a time when He was not created. It just means that the Father is the source of the Son, and the Father and Son are the source of the Holy Spirit. Everybody say eternal begetting. Amen. And that's where I, I will decide by God's grace how deep we'll get into that. Maybe we won't at all, but that's the terminology that we use. So we do see what we call the economic trinity, the distinctions between the persons. We do not believe like oneness Pentecostals who you have maybe met or listened to online. T.D. Jakes is a famous one. Marcus Rogers on YouTube. These are heretics. And when we say heretic, we don't mean that they're a bad person, sinister, don't say anything good. What we're just saying is they have a belief that falls outside of Orthodox Christianity. But how many know even heretics can scramble eggs, okay? How many, how many know they could do something good on your car, okay? How many know they could tell you something nice about politics if they have the right understanding, okay? So uh, when I say I warn you against heretics, I'm not saying that everything they say is wrong. What I'm saying is I'm warning you against T.D. Jakes when he starts to delve into the subject of the Trinity. I'm saying be warned when he talks about that because he knows not what he does. He's an amazing preacher and teacher 
future, and God will judge the oneness on judgment day in fairness. And so I want to be careful in how I judge them because this can be quite technical at certain points. But we have to be warned that if someone makes dogmatic statements against clear scripture, then we have to rebuke and correct. Can I hear an amen to that? Well, going to that, uh, the, the oneness may try to get around our understanding as Trinitarians of the economic trinity, the relationship between them, as I described, the Father begetting the Son and the Father and the Son begetting the Holy Spirit, what that may do is make them feel uncomfortable because they will want to say, well, we don't like this term of begetting. Well, even though it's biblical, we don't like it. Maybe it has to do just with the incarnation. But we can show them that it's an eternal begetting, so they will will run into a problem. But what they'll try to say is from this verse, they'll say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And here's how they'll read it. In the beginning was the Son, the Son was with the Father, and the Son was the Father. Do you see how they'll read that? Because they misunderstand the third clause. Each time you see a comma in the verse 1, that's a clause. Uh, clause 1 or clause A is in the beginning was the word. Clause B was, uh, and the word was with God, uh, with God. And clause C or the third clause is in the word was God. And so if we take the word as the son, how many believe the word is the son of God? And how many believe God is the father? We do. So now why oh, we agree with that, but then why don't we make that conclusion that they do? Why don't we say in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was the Father? Because as it ends there, and the Word was God, the subject is the Word, and the, the was God is a predicate nominative. That means it modifies the subject. It is not having two subjects, one in the Father, one being the Word, as it's moving through that clause. When it comes to the end there, that word God now takes on a description of what the word is. And so that's why translators say, and the word was divine, and the word was deity. Because when we look to the second clause, and the word was with God, he's not with himself. You can't be with yourself. Do you all understand that? So that's why if you don't even understand the Greek and don't understand what a predicate nominative is, you can understand just by reading it that if the word is with someone, then he's not going to be the someone he's with. Otherwise, he just contradicted himself right? If A is with B and then B and A are the same thing, then I just contradicted what I just said at the beginning. Does everybody get that? If I go A is with B and then I go B is A, then I just contradicted myself. So when it says, and the word was with God, it is true to say, and the the son was with the father. So they're right in the beginning where it says, in the beginning was the son. We're going to know that's who that is, the word. And the word was with God. We're going to know the one he's with is the father. But it doesn't now conclude, and the son was the father. What it means is, and the Son is God, or was God like the Father's? Everybody see how we read that? Now it says, through him all things were made, or rather he was with God in the beginning. Do you notice it reiterates that? He was with the Father in the beginning. He's not with himself, looking at himself in a mirror going, how are you doing? I'm with you today. Do you guys get that? So he's with God, the Father, and he's God like the Father. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So when we look at the economic trinity, everybody say economic. We, we understand that word in economics when it comes to business. We're talking about relationships, customers, uh, and, and sellers and buyers and things like that. When we apply that word to the Trinity, what we're saying is that each person has a role. Each person has a function in the economy of God's nature. You guys tracking with me there? Some deep stuff, but I think we all get it. And so what is the role of the Son? The role of the Son is to be the vessel in which the Father does the creating. 
But if we already know we're supposed to go to the beginning, can you go to Genesis in a tab, please? Genesis chapter 1. Who is there with the Father and the Son creating as well? The Holy Spirit. So you're not supposed to leave out the Spirit in John 1 just because the Spirit hasn't been mentioned. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear more about the Spirit in John and his attributes than any other gospel. We're going to get there in 14, 15, and 16. You're going to hear about being born again of the Spirit in John chapter 3. But just so that you would know as a good reader of the Scriptures, if you hear, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. What are you supposed to understand? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here we see the sun is in that process. Does everybody see it? The son is in that process when you know John has spoken to this time. The one that the father is going to use to create the heavens and the earth is the son, is the word of God. And then this is where I <clears throat> excuse me, say to my friends that are Jehovah Witnesses, they say that Jesus is the first of God's creation, and then he does all of these other things that, that God creates him first. I say, where would Jesus be in God's creation if he created all the heavens and the earth? In other words, if you only have God, and I've drawn this out on a picture before, does some people remember the picture? If you only have God, and then you have a created moment of heavens and earth, but between that moment of there only being God, and then there being a created heavens and earth, where does Jesus go? He can't be in nothing. Does everybody get that? He can't be in heavens. He creates heavens. He can't be in earth because he creates earth. If you only have God before all of creation, where is Jesus? With God. Now, can you dwell with God in his nature and not be God? No, angels have to have a separate place, the heavens. Do you get that? Okay, we have to have a separate place, earth, and then we can be with God either in heaven or in earth, but you just can't be dwelling in the very nature of God and not be God. You can share in his nature. You can partake of his nature. You can be in him in the sense of your spirit being close and intertwined with him, but you cannot be without distinction in God. You cannot have that, and you cannot be separated in God with being God. So the persons of God share the nature of God, and there they are together in their family. So some people, when they say, well, God had to create us out of love, that is the Jewish understanding of God, and that's the Muslim understanding. There's three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and uh, Islam. Christianity is the only one that solves the problem of the many and the one. Let me explain this to you. Can you have a family with one person? No, and technically, can you have it with two? No, the minimum number of perfection in family is three. Why? Because if you only have two, one can only do something for another. I can only do something for my wife, and my wife can only do something for me. A perfect family must have a thing where the two can do something for another, that together my wife and I can love another. Do you all understand that? Otherwise, we're just loving each other. And I know in the English we go, oh, you have a family, you're married, you have a family. And that's nice, but it's not technically true, okay? You cannot have a family until you at minimum have three, because then two can cooperate. You guys getting that? Cooperation is a good word here, can cooperate to do something for the third. So Jesus, the Father, or the Father, the Son, and Jesus complete the perfect family. The monotheistic religions of Judaism and Islam, for God to love, what does he have to do? Create. 
because he has to create something to love. In the Trinity, does God have to create to love? No, because there has been perfect love between who? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Within this family of God, the persons of God, equally sharing the nature of God, there is perfect love without us. And that's now the explanation to why we're made male and female and children. That's why reproduction is male, female, and children because that's the perfect family you order. Does everybody get that? Male, female, children. And God wanted us to reflect his image in that. Now going back to here, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We know Jesus is present there with the Father. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the what? And the what? And the Spirit of God, thank you, was hovering over the water. So let's go back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know the Holy Spirit is there as well. He was with God in the beginning. And it says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So here's the way I like to look at it. Now knowing John 14, 15, and 16. Matter of fact, let's just go there real quick. Go to John chapter uh, 16. Now that I know the Holy Spirit's a relationship, to the Father and the Son. When I look at creation, it's the Father speaking through the Son and the Son commanding and working with the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen to them? Let me show you in John chapter 16. Go to John chapter 16 when he says that, uh, no, it's actually John chapter 14. Look at verse, go to verse 25. Look at the relation. Let's start in verse 23. Look at the relationship. John 14, 23, that the Father and Son have with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is speaking. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. Can I hear an amen for that? Amen. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our uh, home or abode with them. Now look at verse 24. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you have heard are not of my own. They belong to who? The Father who sent me. Now everybody get this. How is the relationship, the economy in the Father and the Son? The Son speaks what he hears the Father say. That's not just on earth. That's been for all of eternity. Does everybody get that? Jesus is the word of the Lord. He is the logos of the Father. He is the expression of the mind of the Father. Look at it right here. It's, it says here that uh, uh, in verse 24 it says, Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The words you hear are not my own. So the moment that angels were created in the heavens and those words were being spoken and angels are hearing them, who are they seeing speaking? Jesus is speaking, right? And where are those words coming from? The Father. Let's start again. When the angels were created, boom, they're coming into being, and God is still speaking forth creation. And so the angels, let's say, are the first of his creation in the heavens, and then he makes the earth. Let's say it works like that, okay? As the angels are hearing the creation of God, and they look to who's speaking. Who is speaking? Jesus is speaking, but where are the words coming from? The Father. He says, the words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now look at verse 25. All this I have spoken while with you, but the advocate, the who? The advocate, and who else is he? The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in whose name? My name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So whose name does the Holy Spirit come in? 
the name of Jesus. So once again, if you were there at creation, say from the angel's perspective, and you now hear the voice of the creator, and you look to hear who's speaking. Who is speaking? Jesus. And then where is he getting his words from? The Father. And then you look to earth as it's formless and void, and it starts being shaped and formed. Who's forming it? The Holy Spirit. There you go. Isn't that powerful? That's how God operates through the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not like the oneness, say, that Jesus is the Father sometimes, and then he's a son sometimes, and then he's the Holy Spirit sometimes, as I can be a son, and I can be a father, and I can be a pastor, three functions of one person. That's not what's happening. There are unique persons talking and listening to each other. Jesus is saying, the words I have, I don't get from myself. That's how you blow up the oneness. If he himself is the Father, then how is he saying he doesn't get the words from the Father, uh, get the words from himself? Because he is the Father. He technically gets them from himself. Does everybody get that? If I say to you, I'm a father, that doesn't mean I'm my father. Okay, Jesus is like the Father, but he is not his Father. If I say to you, I don't get my words from myself, I get them from my Father, do you then look at me and say, okay, well, then you're your own Father then. Now get your words. No, you go, well, then who's your Father? And then I would point to a person and say, this is my Father. If you were there with Jesus, you would understand this. He was saying, I'm speaking like the Father. I'm doing what the Father says. And then they say, well, now show us the Father. And then he says, well, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In what way is he saying that? In the nature. If you have seen me, you've seen what my father is in nature. Just like if you've seen me as a Vorostic, you've seen the other Vorostic in nature. But that doesn't mean we're the same person. John is not contradicting himself. That's where this is found where he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. But then he says, I'm going to the father. So he's not contradicting himself. It's both and. Jesus is equal to the father in nature, but not the father in person. Does everybody get that? The father and son are equal in nature, but not the same person. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in nature, but not the same person. Going back to John chapter 1, please. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. We know that the Holy Spirit is doing that. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Let's go now to Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse around, uh, around verse 20-ish. You're going to now see, when we, when we see the creation of mankind, in general, what does it say in Genesis chapter 2? Who created man? Who does it say created man? Don't wait for the karaoke. Who does it say? God created man, right? God created man. Now look at this in verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman out of the rib of man, taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. He said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she has been taken out of me. Okay, now let's just go up here a little bit so we see the creation of Eve up to chapter 2, say verse uh, maybe 11. -ish. No, no, let's go to 120, chapter 1, verse 20 rather. What you're going to see is not only did the Lord God, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, how many know that's talking about the one true God? If somebody says Yahweh Elohim is an angel doing all this, they are redonkulous. No angel is called Yahweh Elohim to the creation of man, please. We'll be down just a little bit further. When we hear that the Lord God made woman, we also see that the Lord God here made man. Look at it. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of who he created them? 
In the image of God, he created them male and female. Now, if you're looking at John and you're hearing that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. When you go to uh, humankind, you're supposed to be ready to see Jesus there, aren't you? Mankind. And then it goes further and it says, in him was life, right? In him was light, rather, and that light was the life of all mankind. Does everybody see that? Now going to chapter 2 again, he breathes in them and man becomes a living soul. Go to chapter 2. Go on down just a little bit here. It's going to be um, right up above that. It's going to be around the first part of chapter 2. Go to verse like 3. Let's start around verse 3. Let's see here. When he breathed into man, go up just a little bit for me. Let somebody find the scripture where he breathed into them. Because I want you to see only Jesus can breathe life. Which verse is it? I thought she was waving to you. Does anybody know? Somebody Google it real quick. 2-7, please. Thank you. Then the Lord God. Who did this? Say it like you mean it. Don't get confused because I was confused. Verse 7. Who did it? Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. That's what we were praying about, the kingdom of God coming to earth, right? And he did what into his nostrils? Breathe into his nostrils the breath of what? Life. And man became a living soul. Go back to John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. When God created woman, that's Jesus. When God created Adam, breathe into him, that's Jesus. When we get the summary statement, so God made them male and female, who is that? Jesus. Keep on going. I love seeing Jesus in the Bible. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How many know you can't stop what God has started? How many know right now God is speaking to us through our consciences? That's what makes us unique because we're living souls. That breath that God gave us at birth, at that created moment when humanity started, not from the goo through the zoo to you, but at the breath of God, human beings became living souls. We got the light of our conscience. And I talked about that last week. How many of you have ever sang a song before? That's because God put light in your conscience. How many of you have ever made or created something before? That's because God gave you light. How many of you are glad today you're not slinging doo-doo in the zoo today? How many glad you're not the one in the cage that everybody's staring at that my kids went to look at? How many glad you're not being ridden today? Hallelujah. How many are glad you're not being eaten today? How many have ever, like I said, created something, made something, a piece of art, sang a song? That's because the light of God is in you. And the great light that comes through salvation also cannot be overcome. But here it includes both, the light of consciousness and the light of recreation and being born again. Not only does God give all mankind light to know themselves and know thy creator, but he gives them a spiritual light to be born again, to no longer walk in the deeds of the flesh because we know from that Genesis narrative that we have fallen into sin and now we need to be born again. And so you can look at this chapter uh, 1 verse 5 and say the light is shining in me and the devil can't stop it. Amen. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Now let's go to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, who came as a witness to testify. How many witnesses do I have here that want to testify? 
Amen. Concerning the light, so that through him all might believe, he himself was not the light. He came as only a witness to the light. And this is where we get our command to be like John the Baptist. We're going to see it all throughout the Gospels, that whatever God has lightened in you as knowledge, you're supposed to give to others. Now, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is why I believe that we also have to include in the light the consciousness, because not everybody's a Christian. I get that, but everybody who's a human is made in the image of God. And so the light of Christ has been given to everyone. You are never uh, the light of Christ in conscience. Let me just be clear right there. Everybody say, Christ consciousness. That's not what I'm talking about, but I just wanted to make sure I tied it together so you don't tie it together. Consciousness and Christ and go, Christ consciousness. We all have it. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your consciousness has come from Christ the creator. You do not get Christ consciousness, the mind of Christ, until you're born again by the Creator. Okay? So there is a difference. But we do have to understand the universality of the consciousness that humanity shares has come from God. We do share a consciousness. And I don't mean like Avatar all going around a tree getting the blue energy, if anybody remembers that, singing our song together. Okay? I'm not talking about that. When I'm talking about a universal consciousness, I'm talking about all of us share the components of what it means to be conscious. It's universal. You do not have a different consciousness than I do. And this is why we believe in the value of the unborn as well as those who are ill, even the terminally ill, because we do not believe that consciousness is determined by shapes of body or the length of a body or the age of a body. I believe at conception in the womb, consciousness is given. Because I don't think you take a cup of consciousness and mix it with a cup of flesh, and then there you get a human being. I don't believe consciousness is weighed like we're baking a cake here today. I don't believe as I've gotten bigger that my consciousness has gotten bigger, you know. And when I weighed almost 300 pounds, mm, I had a big consciousness, you know. And now because I've lost a little bit, consciousness. No, I don't believe that. I believe our consciousness, our image of God that's given to us by breath is incorporeal. It is not carnal. It is not made of flesh. It is spiritual and resides where God commands it to reside. It is in the womb at conception. We can see this throughout the Bible. We can also see that it's in the ill and the terminally ill. That's why we do not believe in abortion or infanticide or murder or youth in Asia. We believe that God gives life and he takes away life. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. All right. So he himself, talking about John the Baptist, was not that light. He came to witness to that light. Let's keep being witnesses. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Here is Christ now coming into creation. He is a transcendent being before this time. He is transcendent. You could not go knock on Jesus' door and ask him for a cup of coffee. Jesus was separated from us. As we're going to learn in John, when we go to our Isaiah chapter 6, and we hear Isaiah see the Lord high and lifted up. Who does John say that that is? Jesus. Let's just go there real quick. Go to John chapter 12, and then Isaiah chapter 6. He spoke this because he saw Jesus' glory. I'm going to Google it this time because nobody helped me. 
Yeah, you guys let me down last time. Hallelujah. I wish I had the whole Bible memorized. I talked to a sister yesterday that said she did, and then she couldn't recall one verse. So then I was like, well, I see who I'm dealing with now. Right? Sometimes people act like that. I was, it was so funny because uh, John chapter 12, verse 41, I was talking with her, and at some point, she just came in hot. She was like, I'm against all false doctrine. What are you doing about it? And I'm like, I think we're going to be friends, first of all, because I'm, I'm against false doctrine too. But then she just kept rambling on and on. It's like almost she wanted to find something that we disagreed with. So then we somehow ended up on the subject of women preachers. And I'm like, yes, they can preach. So then she started rebuking me by preaching to me as a woman about how she shouldn't be able to preach. So then I said to her, if that's how you think, be silent, woman, and go talk to your husband, and I'll explain it to him. Then for sure she got upset at that point, and I said, no, but for real, for real, think about it, just think about it for a second. I'm a man, I'm an elder, and you're trying to correct me, and you don't have a doily on your head, and you don't have a husband to go home and straighten this out with, but yet you're correcting me, it's a little bit messed up right now. So I'm trying to tell her, be free, be free, but she didn't want to be free. I kept trying to unlock that door. She was slamming it shut. I kept trying to unlock it, let her. She kept slamming it shut. I want to be here. Don't you change my mind. I want to stay locked up right here, okay? So then she went on with her bad self. But pray for her if you think about her. Look at Isaiah chapter 12, verse 41. Let's start in Isaiah 6. Let's build up to what uh, John's going to be sharing here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Who did he see? Did, did he see an angel? Was he hanging out just seeing cherubim? Who did he see right here? I saw the Lord. He's going to see a lot of other stuff, but it's very clear who we're talking about. The main person is here. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, unless there's two thrones there, a throne that we don't know about, unless there's another God that we don't know about, which, of course, would be contradicting the Scripture, unless somebody else's train of their robe is filling the whole temple, we're talking about the one God, right? The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Above him were the seraphim. Him, each with six wings. Now we get a description of these angelic creatures. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And then they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is who? The Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now going back to John chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus is preaching. Jesus is bringing up Isaiah. And John, the author, here in black and white, not in red, distinguishing between Jesus' words and the narrator's word. Here, John is narrating for us after Jesus has been preaching. Just scroll up a little bit, please, so they can see the red letters above. That's going down further in the passage. Go up to smaller verses, please. When you see up here, keep going. Keep on going up here. The red letter is there. Now go down again, back to verse 41. Thank you. You see he's going to explain what Jesus was doing. Does everybody get that? The narrator John is going to explain. And he's quoting Isaiah. He's saying this is why Jesus said that, because he's talking about Isaiah and all of these things. And then in verse 41, he says, by the way, you know, hey, I've been telling you what Jesus is talking about from Isaiah. But Isaiah said all of this because he saw whose glory? Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now go back to that Isaiah 6 passage. And whose glory does it say he saw? The Lord Almighty. He saw his glory in verse 1. Go up also to verse 1, please. I saw the Lord high and exalted. So he's talking about the Lord. Going back to John 1 now. 
The Bible says that he was the true light. And he was coming into the world. And so this now should not be taken lightly, as I talked about before, the incarnation. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time here today. That Lord, the one that was so high and exalted, that one that had a train of his robe filled the temple, that one that had six-winged creatures flying day and night around his throne, worshiping him, that one that was called holy, 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 no one one is like him, separate from all things. That's what the word holy means. That one now comes into this earth. That is amazing. There is no story like that in human history. Nobody is like my Jesus. Somebody say, my Jesus came to me. Amen. He came to us, my Jesus. I know before and a little bit last week I talked about it. You might have heard about pagan stories of incarnating gods or gods having sex with humans and making half gods, half humans. But this story is unique. It's unique in so many ways just by John's depiction alone. If you know the original, you would never fall for a fake. When my wife worked at Parkway Bank, they still did this with the tellers. They gave them training with the uh, counterfeit money, they let them touch it and see it, smell it, look it over, flash the light on it, so that they would get so used to handling the fake that they wouldn't fall for it. And then they gave them the real, take it home, sleep with it, smell with it, and then know the difference so that when somebody hands you a fake, you'll know the genuine so much, and you've handled that fake, you can understand that is not real. You're only going to accept the real. How many know there's a real deal here when it comes to Christ's incarnation? And there's been many fakes but there's only one real deal. You become familiar with the original, and you can understand the fakes right off the bat. I, I you know, like a good bank teller, will give you a fake every now and then. That's why I bring up these heresies and false doctrines. Some people are like, hey, why do you do that? That's why I do it. Even in the Bible, it does it. But I want you to become more obsessed with Jesus than anything else out there. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're talking to a pagan. You know, let's say you live during this time, and you say, our God came in the flesh, and they go, oh, our God did that too. And you go, really? Was he born of a virgin? And they go, oh, no, no, that's not how our story, st our story starts out. No, our God had some sex, and uh, it was a little bit wild, and then, and then our God came out. You understand it's a different story right there. I'm being serious. How many know that's a different story? That's the same way if you're talking to a Mormon. You can just ask him, how was baby Jesus conceived? Just ask a Mormon. I'm serious, and you will understand why they are moronical, amen, because they are more moron than Mormon. Are you listening? Mormon is the name of one of their angels, but it's very moronical, uh, moronish what they believe. So how, how did the father hook up? How did the father do? Oh, he came to Mary one day. Okay, and then they, they got it on, and then out came baby Jesus. That's what, see, that's what pagans believe. Okay, so then you'd talk to somebody else. You'd say, oh, no, it's like, you know, the Hindus. They say, oh, our God, he comes and he appears all the time. Well, when he appears, what does he do? Oh, he comes down for worship. He comes down to be exalted. He comes down to be given all of these accolades. Sometimes Krishna will come down blue. He'll do, you know, if you talk to the Hindus, these kind of uh, pagan ideas. And then you can ask him, did, did he die for his creation? Did he lay down his life? Did he, let, did he let the criminals take advantage of him? Did he wash people's feet? Did he forgive prostitutes? You see, your Christian is nothing like my Jesus. My Jesus didn't come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve. How many know that's a big difference? And then you can just ask him, hey, um, did anybody ever see your God raised from the dead? Because uh, I'm starting to get the uh, understanding that your God's more like Marvel Comics right now. Uh, my God came as a person. He was real. And then people said they saw him raised from the dead. Did your Buddha did, do that? 
Because I'm telling you, man, I've been to Nepal. I'm very respectful. I don't come there to be disrespectful. You know, I went and saw some of their temples. They have these... Uh, these kind of bells and these different things that they pray with. And I feel so bad for them because they feel like the more they spin these bells that make noise, the more prayers they get. And you can just see them spinning those things, you know? Like, hey, man, I'm getting 10,000 prayers, and it's like kind of like a workout for them. You, you get that? And I, how many know some Catholics get some ideas from them as well, you know? Doing all these things, feeling that they can, you know, get more credit to God by crawling upstairs of their temple or lighting all of these candles. That The pagans were doing that too. And I was just like, I wanted to do this, but I didn't. But I wanted to be like, hey, y'all, come on over here. Come on over here. Come here, come here, come here. Let me show you something. You want to see how I talk to my God? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You hear me, Father? I know that you do. It's your son, Joe. I just want to talk to you right now. Come on, somebody. I just talk to him. I just call on his name. Call him up. Call him up. Come on, somebody. Jesus on the main line. Tell him what you want. <laughs> oh, don't get me started. I will embarrass myself and keep going. I will entertain you and embarrass myself. I was, I was watching my brothers the other day sing that song in a nursing home, and I could just imagine, because I've done ministry in a nursing home, and I could just imagine the old folks singing that song, amen. Call him up, call him up. Yes, Lord, calling you. And Jesus is like, you about ready to come up. You about ready to come up here. We're, gonna be, we're not going to be FaceTiming no more. I'm going to be seeing you pretty soon, Bertha. Come on up, come on up. But no, I was just, I was just precious. You know, some of those songs we... We don't get them. But I think you get them. In this church, we get them, right? Like, we're deep enough to get that. To the, the Bible's point here is that when the true light is coming into the world, what is he going to do? He's going to die for the world because the world is not going to recognize him. Look at this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So we're thinking like, oh, man, you're, you know, if my God were to come down, you know, a lot of religions say this, you know, if my God came down, you would really believe in him. We as Christians don't say that. We as Christians don't say, like, if you saw our Jesus, you would have more chances of believing him. How many know we don't say it like that? We say, if he probably came here, you probably want to kill him. Because <laughs> you don't like what I'm saying, and I'm not even your judge. I can tell, I can tell you right now, if he came here, you're not going to like what he has to say. Because the Bible says that to us, doesn't it? It says, if they've rejected you, they've rejected me. And now I understand some people are like, well, Joe, you're not perfect. You don't always do anything perfect. Yeah, but I think I can, like, I can read his, his words pretty decently, you know? Like, even though every now and then I don't read very well, but how many know I can read the part where it says, uh, you know, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life? And then I can, I can say that to him and say, hey, if you don't believe in him, you're going to perish. Like, do you think if Jesus ascended from heaven and told that to them, that would make it any easier? No, it wouldn't. And the idea that signs and wonders are going to change people's hearts, that's not in our Bible either. As a matter of fact, when we teach the great signs and wonders of Moses and the Israelites, does it end with revival and everybody believing in God? No, actually, our stories teach the opposite, that by the time they just get over to the other side, God's about ready to strike them all dead. 
You get what I'm saying? Seriously, I mean, when we see signs and wonders in the Bible, it's, it's usually working against people because then they just get into the habit of saying, well, you sent manna, now send quail. And then while you're at it, send some beef. You know, where's the beef, Jesus? That's how people get. I mean, let's just be honest. If he was here and he did that kind of a miracle, the kind of miracles he did in Moses' time or in the time when he was on the earth, what would people start doing? They would start coming like this. My name's Jimmy, and I'll take all you can give me. Okay, when's the next bread coming out? I'll tell my boss I'm sick, but really I'm not because Jesus healed me. But anyways, just tell him I'm sick. I'm not going to work. Here, here Jesus, make some more manna. Jesus, make some more bread. If, if you're going to keep making bread and fishes, then I don't need to go to work. Jesus was rebuking people within moments after his greatest miracles. And then he said to the people that were the most hungriest for the miracles with a wrong heart, he said, the only miracle you'll get is the sign of Jonah, which is him being buried and raising again as Jonah was swallowed by a whale and then spit out. And so when we see that he's coming and they don't recognize him, it's not because he didn't do signs and wonders. As a matter of fact, John's book is going to be based on seven main miracles of Jesus. Uh, if you could go to John chapter 20, verse 30, please. When we go to John chapter 20, at the end of John's book, he says, man, I wrote you these things so that you would believe. He wants us to believe. He's not trying to make it difficult for us to believe. So he wants us to hear the testimonies, the stories. He picks out seven main miracles of Jesus. Look at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, talking about the seven, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is who? The Messiah, the Son of God, amen, and that by believing you may have what in his name? Life in his name. Thank you. Now going back to John chapter 1. Well, is, is John contradicting himself? It says he came into the world, but many did not recognize him. No, it's the same story. Only those, as we get now to verse 11 and 12, only those who receive him and believe him for more than just what they get out of him are going to be the ones born again. It's not going to be just the ones who saw signs and wonders. In other words, seeing miracles does not equal faith. That's what a lot of people think. They think if they see more signs and wonders, it's going to have an equality to their faith. Like that's just going to make them believe God more. That is not true. I have seen Pentecostals with signs and wonders backslide away from Christ. And if they don't repent, they will be like those who say, Lord, Lord, did I not do all of these things in your name? And what's he going to say to them? Depart from me for I never knew you. In the sense of like you are out of relationship with me. Verse 11, he came to that which his own, talking about his Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Yet there were some that did. Look at verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. Somebody say the right. Thank you. The right to become children of God. Children born not out of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Come on, say born of God. Amen. If you could hold your place in that passage, please. Now we know the difference between what I was teasing before, Christ consciousness being given to everybody because we're given light. No, here we now see there is a difference between being born in the image of God with light, which we would call a conscience, and being born again, made a child of God, now having Christ consciousness. Does everybody get the difference?
Christ gives all humans consciousness, but you don't get Christ consciousness. What's I'm just using that little buzzword or the mind of Christ, the nature of Christ. Does everybody get that too? The nature of Christ until you're born again. And what is it not from? It is not from your natural descent. So this is not given to all humanity. Though we are brothers and sisters of humanity, we are brothers and sisters from Adam and Eve, one race, the human race. We are not brothers and sisters with Christ unless we are born of Christ. So it's not natural descent. Now, do you understand why I say when people talk about my people, I'm like, what are you talking about, Willis? My people are God's people. I get that from the scripture. I believe this just as much as I believe everything else. How many believe I belong to another person, another person named Christ? How many believe you belong to another person named Christ and that your people are the people of Christ? Okay. Now notice what else it's not of. It's not of human decision. So this is where sometimes our friends who are Calvinists go, well, you see, if it's not of your human decision, then that means God saves those he wants, and he makes your will to want his will. So it was never your will to begin with. God decides for you to be saved. He brings you in like a fish on a hook. That's what they mean by draw in John 6. We'll get to that in a little bit. It was not your decision at an altar. It was God's decision to do it. That's what Calvinists say who take a fatalistic approach. But what's the flip side of that, which we call the basement of Calvinism? Because that's the John MacArthur version. That's the version they put out on their you know, Sunday sermons or what you get on Moody Radio. But what's the basement of Calvinism is that if he hasn't chosen you, John Calvin said, the, the leader of that movement back in the Reformation time, he said if he hasn't chosen in you, you're doomed from the womb because those God has not chosen to save have no choice in the matter. So just like how those who get saved have no choice in the matter, those who are lost have no choice in the matter. God decides what marbles he's taken with him at the end of all of this. I'll take these and throw those out. That's what they call God's sovereignty. And somebody say, God forbid. Amen. As much as I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters, and we stand with them on so many good um, social issues and gospel issues like uh, Apologia Church and others that we love, we disagree with them. But this is one of their main scriptures. They go, Joe, how can you say that it's your choice to choose Christ when it says right here that you're born of God, not by human decision? It's because they're putting the cart before the horse. Because I have a choice to receive Christ does not mean my choice to receive Christ gives me the right to be born of Christ. Can I explain that to you? That is not a trick on words. I got some deep thinkers going, I don't know if I believe it yet. I don't know if I believe it. Let me help you. If you come to my house, knock on the door. It was your choice to whether or not you would come that day, knock on the door, right? Now it's my choice to let you in. Does everybody get that? Now, once you come in and I feed you all of these things or give you all of these things as a good guest, did your choice to come into my house give you the right to all the food I gave you in that house? No. All your choice did was put you in an opportunity for me to give rights unto you. The right to be born again belongs to God. That goes in God's bucket. The choice for you to come to God and receive rights goes in your bucket. 
Does everybody get that? You have a bucket of human volition. In that human volition, you have a will, you have a mind, and you have emotions. That is in your bucket. God has a bucket over here as creator, sovereign Lord Almighty, but he also has rights. He also has blessings. How many know there's some blessings up in there too, amen? He has those. And if he wants to make a transaction with you, if he wants you to have these rights, he can determine how you must come. He could say, hop on one leg. He could say, dance like a chicken. He could say, only eat vegan. How many are glad he didn't say that? Okay. He could say whatever he wanted. But if he says, believe, then by you believing, you get to go into that bucket of rights. Amen. But you did not determine the rights that would be in that bucket. Jesus could say, believe in me, and then I'll just take you to heaven and show you the rest. And you'd have to take him at his word. And you get up there, and he could hand you a, a white towel and put on you a black tuxedo, and he could say, get to work serving on you, uh, serving on him. How many know he could do that? How many know God could take your life right now and spend it on whatever he wants? God could make you whatever he wants you to be. But the beauty of it, as we're learning here, is that God actually tells us what his plan and purpose is. We don't have to wonder, even though we don't understand all the glories of heaven, what we see in that bucket of God's rights and blessings is we get to become co-heirs with Christ. We get to become born again. Well, those were things not done by human decision. In other words, it was not my decision to twist the arm of God and say, make me a spiritually new creature after Adam has sinned and blown it all up. Now you give me the Holy Spirit. That's my decision. That's my will. Does everybody get that? We don't do that. What we do is we say, your will be done, not my will. I make a choice. And then now God goes, because you received me, here are now the consequences. Here are now the rights. Here are now the blessings. How many say, uh, think that's a lot better than being doomed from the womb? And only God making choices that you don't get to make. Once again, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. That's what we do. We have the choice whether to receive or reject. Belief or unbelief. What are you doing today? See, if you do not receive him, if you do not believe in him, you will be condemned not because of him. Because on the Calvinist system, couldn't all sinners, non-born-again people go to heaven and when, you know, right before they get kicked out, they could just go, well, that was what you wanted, right? Like, you didn't do it. You didn't give me the decision. You literally made me just to destroy me in hell forever. What was the point of that? How many know they would be free from any guilt because they could say back to God, you have not given me any other choice, and isn't that oftentimes when we hear people arguing with us how they think we believe? So in one sense, when we're out discussing the, the, the things of God with lost people, it's like, thanks, Calvinist, for blowing this whole conversation up. Because now I have to go back over everything to say, no, 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 that's not how it works. Hell is not a place God created you to go. You are not doomed from the womb. We show them that God has given his light and conscience to all people. And as we go through the rest of scriptures, let's just go there now, John 12, 32, we see that Jesus is drawing all people unto himself through the gospel. How many believe God is drawing all people through the gospel? Amen. Uh, Vinny, would you begin to come, please? I wish I could have gotten further. Maybe next time I won't even start at verse 1. I'll start right where I leave off here. But look at what it says here in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about the cross, will draw how many people to myself? How many people? All people. 
So are all people, according to this Bible, the Bible that we just read, the, the same book rather, is this uh, drawing some people or all people? So if someone, going back to chapter 1, or let's go back to the notes rather, going back to chapter 1, looking at verse 11, if you don't receive him, whose fault is that? If you don't believe in him, whose fault is that? Come on. Let, let, let's, let's make it plain. Let's say you're at the wedding, okay? Let's say, Jason, you're at the wedding, and I see you like across the dance floor, and I go like this. I throw that out. I throw that out there like that. Have you ever seen the little fish in the hook? You got, you got a choice. You got a choice whether or not you take that hook and you come onto that dance floor, right? You could just, no, Pastor, I don't want to come dance with you. I throw out the hook again, try to reel you in. You're like, man, I don't want to come. Joselito would come for sure. This brother loves to dance at wedding. I know Jason would come too. But it's the same way with a child. How many know as a child begins to experience, they, they have already had a conscience, but how many know as a child begins to experience their conscience, they start making some bad decisions? How many know children are born sinful and that's why they need to be born again? God is merciful to children. We'll talk about that at a different time. But we see them starting to make the wrong choice. I can see it around two or three in my children when I say, come to me. Come. Come on. Let's come over here. Come on over here. It's their choice now, isn't it? Because they can't understand everything. I get that. But they understand daddy's calling. And then they make a choice. It is no different with us. God is not making the choice for you whether or not to be saved. God has given you a choice, and then he's given you the consequence on what happens whether or not you choose to be saved. So as my parents used to say, it's quite biblical. You have a choice, and you get to make it, but you don't get to make the consequences. God is saying to the world, everyone has a choice to come and receive him, and those who do will get rights that they don't decide upon. The right that I get to have eternal life now, that was decided by him. And let me just give you another example. How many know God could say, after the millennial reign, I'm just starting over, and I'm going to make a whole other race, I'm going to try this thing differently? That's his right. Who is going to say after the millennial reign, like, God, you have to keep us around? Like he could just say, hey, man, that was a good video game. That was a good time. We played some Halo. We played some human Humanity 2.0 together. Hey, guys, I'm going to see you on the flippity-flop. Just going to turn this off, reset, and start again. I know some of you, like, that messes with your mind. Like, man, God could do that? Yes. There was a time when there wasn't a you. There was a time when there wasn't heavens and earth. How many know he could just go back to the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit? He could just do that. So did I choose to give myself the right to have eternal fellowship with the Father? I didn't. He chose that. That's not from my ancestors. That's not from me. That's not from a husband. That's from God. And we ought to take that serious. Moving on here to verse 14 and onward. The Word became flesh. This is talking about the incarnation of Christ and He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And it seems like we'll be stopping at the same spot we did last week. By God's grace, maybe I'll start at verse 15 next time. It's just so much fun going from 1 to 14. I hope it was enjoyable for you because in all sincerity, I could probably do this on repeat like Groundhog's Day for about the next year. I could probably, I know some of the staff is like, yes, 
How many times in staff devotions have we gone someplace like this? I could, I could start right back at verse 1 and go all the way through it, show you scriptures you hadn't seen before, tie in points that we hadn't heard before, because it's really capturing the whole story of humanity. But I want us to at least end with something that's applicable with that receiving and then him becoming flesh. Once again, we didn't demand God to come and get him to, you know, um, respond to our petition. God came out of his own heart to be with us. And imagine what it was like for John and Peter and James to see the glory of Jesus fully revealed on the mountain of transfiguration. And now imagine what it was like for them to see him crucified. That's what they're writing is from that point of view. But now they're not confused anymore. At, the, at those moments, it was a little bit confusing for some of them. Probably only John was the one who held it enough together to go from start to finish without abandoning Christ. Every other disciple did. We know Judas killed himself. We know the multitudes turned on him. So many that were shouting Hosanna one day were shouting crucify him the next day. But imagine... John now writing this with the clarity that he has, and he's saying this to you. The one that is from the beginning, the creator, the one who gave us life, the one that we know as the logic of the Father, that one we have seen his glory, and this is what his glory is like. What is God's glory like? Here's what it's like. You want to know? John would say it like this. His glory is full of grace and truth. How many know right now we could preach a whole nother sermon on that? Have you really delved down to the depths of grace yet? Could you say you know it all? I mean, I can't say that. How about the truth of God? Can you say that? No, but it brings us in to learn more, doesn't it? To go from glory to glory to glory. See, I believe when we're talking about glory, I believe we're always talking about tangible things. A lot of times we just think about the radiance of God being his glory, and it's like, oh, I feel his glory. Oh, man, it feels so good. What does it feel like? I don't know. It just feels good. The glory of God. You know, like we just think that's all the glory is. Like the glory is some release of endorphin, like getting high on Jesus. But how many are glad you do get high on Jesus? I am happy for that. There ain't no high like the most high. Give Jesus a try. I've been hooked on him now over 20 years. Hallelujah. I didn't, need, I didn't need 12 steps to get off my other drugs. I just needed one step to get hooked on Jesus. Amen. Some of you trying to quit cold turkey and just quit your bad habits and you're not replacing anything, look in the eyes of Christ, fall in love with Jesus. Your heart will be so full of him, so full of his glory, his grace, and his truth. You won't have room for vaping, even if it smells like cotton candy. You won't have room for alcoholism, pornography. You'll be so full of Jesus. Amen? So full of Jesus. But when we think about grace and truth, I like to think of it like, the two sides of a coin you have one coin you can't divorce the sides of that coin they are together and here with Christ his glory how we understand it and how we'll grow in it and how we will experience it is through our knowledge and understanding of grace and truth in other words you weren't meant just to vape off Jesus every day and get high off him Jesus is not just a substance for your pleasure. 
He gave you a mind, a will, an emotion to receive him and become his child. But as children, we grow up. So what does maturity look like in the kingdom of God? It looks like growing in grace. You should be the most gracious person on your job. You should be the most gracious person in your family. You should be the most forgiving, kind, loving person on this planet. You should be so kind that if they call you names, you bless them. If they throw you eggs, you say, I'm going to scramble them and serve you breakfast. And even in your toughest moments, you pray for your enemies. You and I should be free from any gospel or any message that comes with works. Second service, I'll be continuing, Lord willing, the series in Galatians. Please listen to it if you want to see the expression of grace through the gospel. You and I should not be tethered to our works and performance, thinking that the more we work, the more we do things for God, the more we get of God. We should not be looking at all the things we do, 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 do 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 for God. We should get past all of our works for God and see what God is working in us for his glory, for his reputation to be built up. If I could do it without God, he never would have sent Jesus on the cross. If I could do it in my own willpower, he never would have given me the Holy Spirit. And yet, having the grace of God does not make us people who are just uh, so heavenly-minded that we do no earthly good. Knowing the grace of God will put your mind so much on heavenly things that you change the earth for good. That because of the grace of God, like Paul, you will work harder than them all. You will work hard, but you will not put the work you do for the Lord attached to his love, his care, his compassion, and his great mercy. You will not see those things as an exchange. The more I work, the more I receive. And then when we receive the truth of God, the truth of God sets us free from every lie. How many have ever been afraid before? How many know as adults sometimes we feel weird because we're not supposed to be afraid? What do you do when the son comes into your room or your daughter comes in your room and it's lightning outside and they say, I'm afraid, and then mama's also afraid? Well, I'm afraid too. Who do you hold now? Come on, somebody. I mean, have you ever dealt with fear? I, I know my son right now, I shouldn't say this, he's dealing with fear because he has his room by himself. Titus is about ready to join him. But when he's afraid, he goes to his two sisters' room, his two younger sisters. And so they came down today. One had bunny slippers on, and the other one had unicorn slippers on. And my son came down in his camouflage pajamas, and I said, you're running to the bunny room and to the, uh, the unicorn room for safety. You're supposed to be their big brother. He said, oh, Dad, I'm just afraid. And I go, we're going to help you with that. Start reading the Bible. I'm going to pray for him and be gracious. Everybody go, ah. But how many know, like, he runs into their room, but then it gets scary enough. Where are they going to run? All three of them now going to run into our room. And then what if we hear something downstairs? Whose room do I run into? Right? I know as an adult I have been afraid. And sometimes I'm, like, shocked at myself. I'm like, why are you afraid? I mean, you're 44 years old. You ain't supposed to be afraid to be by yourself right now or this kind of thing or this kind of thing. You know, all these different things happen. I'm afraid. My wife had her surgery and all that. I'm afraid. You know, I was being by myself at home with all the kids. I'm afraid. How many have felt afraid before? How many know a good acronym for fear? False evidence appearing, appearing real. 
Truth drives out fear. We know love and our comfort in God, but truth will drive out all fear. When you know the truth about planes, you'll fly on a plane. If you knew the truth about the space program, you would get on the the ship. If you knew the truth about water and your flotation device, you would go float on water today. Wouldn't be scared of water. Come on. You wouldn't be afraid to take a cruise. You wouldn't be afraid. If you knew what God could do in a husband's life or a man's life, women, you wouldn't be afraid to trust another man. Our fears come from our lack of understanding from what the world is really made of. God wants to give us truth so that we can face death, we can face opposition, we can face our fears, amen? Can we stand up today? Give it up for Jesus, full of grace and truth. Let's take on the world with Jesus tabernacled with us. I'm gonna, by God's grace, do that next week, the tabernacle of Christ with us. Band and altar workers, would you come? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for sending us Christ. And Father and Son, we thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit. Right now, if you're not born again, would you ask Christ to come into your life? Would you receive him? Believe on him right now. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah who died on the cross, was buried, rose again. For the rest of us who already believe that, would you search your heart if there's any unbelief? Would you ask the Lord to expose it so that your heart can be at peace? And then let's start applying this word. In just a few moments, we'll dismiss And all those who want prayer, either to come to Christ or for any issue, you please, uh, you can feel comfortable to come up to these altar workers. But right now, let's look at grace and truth and receive the glory of God right now if we've been born again. Those who haven't, ask God to do it in you right now, make you a new creation. But those who have, come on, ask God to take you to the depths of grace. God, help me to forgive others. Help me to forgive my own mistakes. God, to forgive myself, not to beat myself up, try to be an overachiever, to prove it to you all the time how much I love you, God, like Peter. And then I fail and mess it up. Oh, God, I pray that you bring me to perfect peace. Lord, I pray you give me truth about every situation I'm facing today. I'm more than a conqueror. My mind is renewed. I can take on these situations. Lord, there's no uh, weapon formed against me that will prosper. That's the truth today. Come on, a few of you right now need to get that in your heart about the truth of your enemies. The truth of your enemies is that they can't prosper against you. Some of you need to have grace for yourself, grace for others. Apply it to your life and ask God to do more. Full of grace and truth. God wants us to be full of his glory today. As we'll learn in just a few moments, that's why he died on that cross, to give us a new life so that we could have that glory residing in us. Receive it now, a few more moments. God, I receive grace for my wife. I want to be the most gracious husband to her, Lord. Give me grace for my children. I never want to run out of grace for my children, Father. No matter what I got to do in discipline and teaching, may it come out of grace. Come on, pray for your marriages to be full of grace. Pray for your parenting to be full of grace. Pray for your, you know, your job, everything you do, full of grace, truth. Together, together, you will change the world with the Holy Spirit today. Together with God and his grace and truth, you will change the world. The Holy Spirit was sent to bring us Jesus full of grace and truth. A few more moments. I pray for the grace of God to reach our politicians. I pray for the grace of God and the truth of God to reach every abortion clinic so that abortion would be rid from this land. I pray for every young person in school that, God, they'll be full of your grace and truth. God, I pray for a transformation to come of grace and truth by the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive him today. Would you just sing something like that today uh, to the Lord, uh, Des, in closing? I receive you. I believe in you. I believe in you. 
We believe in Jesus today. We believe in you, Jesus. We receive you. God, we believe there's nothing impossible for you today. Anyone facing fears today? Let the truth of God shine his light in that situation. And some of you may be facing real danger. That may be true, a part of your situation. But it's not true that fear is going to help you to face that danger. So whatever situation you're facing today that's causing fear, if that's you, would you just raise up your hand and just say, I believe. I believe in you. You might be taking on some scary situations in life, but God's going to have you go through it without fear, facing it with truth, full of grace. Some of you are afraid to fail and to try something great for God. Jesus has come to dwell with you, to take away the fear of failure, to take away the fear of lack of performance, and to give you grace and truth to accomplish your goals. I pray for dreams and visions to manifest in this place. Through dreams and visions. Let's pray this out. Second service, thank you for your patience. But who, who here wants to see dreams and visions come to pass? Say it today. I believe you're the God of miracles. I pray for grace on your business ideas. Grace on your ideas to be married and have a family. I pray for the truth of God to strengthen you to change the world with the glory of God. Let grace and truth change the world today. He came to Tabernacle.